0: for us to just read this passage together. We're picking up in part two of a message that's simply entitled, The Gospel Calls Us to Worship, right? Paul has has gone through Uh, Chapters 9 through 11, he kind of chases this huge rabbit about the subject of Israel and their standing with God and how they've denied Jesus as the Savior and, and rejected him as the Messiah. And because of that, salvation has not come to them as a people like it should. But there is still a remnant who have trusted Christ, right? And in the midst of all trials and in the midst of a world that may seem like it's gone completely wrong, God always has his remnant, church. He always has his remnant. We can be thankful for that. The promise that God gave to Elijah back when he thought he was the only one left on the planet that was faithful to God. And God said, Elijah, you are looking at things too small because I have prepared and I have saved thousands who still have yet to bow their knee to Baal. And um, God is still working in us. He's working through us. And we must be faithful to be part of that remnant. But Paul goes through all of these things. And chapter 9 is a mystery, man. It's tough, right? We go through grace and predestination and election and all those questions and all those things. The theologians like to fight over but can never really come to agreement or never come to a full place where they say, I completely understand it. And we saw in chapter 10 and his grace and his goodness and how it's extended to people and how God is patient. He is faithful. And as we wind down in chapter 11, Paul just stops for a minute. And I almost get this idea that he stops. He, put down, he puts down his pen or he, he stops the person that he's you know, dictating all of this to. And he says, I just need to worship God because he is so good. He is so patient and he is so kind and he is so uh, faithful to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. He is so good to us. The fact that he would be patient with Israel and the fact that he would still have a plan, that he wouldn't cast them away even after they've cast him aside so many times. The fact that he won't cast us as his church away even though many times we walk away, even though many times we focus on other things and we chase after other things and we build up our idols. He still loves us. And he's still working to redeem us and call us unto him. And here's what it says in verse number 33 churches. We read this hymn that is almost written by the apostle Paul. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how untraceable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I've been there before trying to tell God what he needed to do. Have you You ever been there before where you thought you knew the mind of the Lord and you're like, mind of the Lord doesn't match up with my mind. Guess what? If it's not matching up, it's not his mind that's out of sync. It's yours. Who's been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for what he's given for him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's read that last verse, 36, together as a declaration of faith and as a declaration of praise to God. Let's read that out loud together. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Lord God, I pray this morning that you have been honored and lifted high in our worship today. Lord, we pray just as we sang that you would be our vision, that we would constantly have our eyes fixed upon you. That, Lord, we would give you praise for who you are. That living you loved us, Lord Jesus, and in dying you saved us. And what a glorious day it will be when we stand before you in heaven. But until then, we know that we can walk in your presence today because you walk with us and you talk with us and you carry us. And I thank you for that, God. Help us to never take our eyes off of our glorious God and our beautiful Savior. As our church, as a church, Lord. That us be founded upon you and upon you alone. And I pray this morning that you would speak to us as we finish this message, as we finish this portion of the book of Romans up. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Be the one who fills us with knowledge. Be the one who fills us with conviction and with promise. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And a hungry church says, amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. Last Sunday, as we began this message, I asked you just to stop for a moment and take a second to think about what was a time when you were the most like dumbfounded or awestruck or just aware of this fact, God is God and I am not. There are several times that I've had that happen in my life. I mentioned this before, seeing Stacy walk down the aisle uh, on our wedding day, which was coming up only almost 20 years ago. Uh, if she stays with me for a couple more weeks, um, 20 years ago when I saw her walk down the aisle, and I just thought, God. You have blessed many, but none have been blessed, such as Derek Holmes. I mean, I'm telling you. And then, you know, seeing the birth of my daughters and, and those types of things. You see the ocean and, 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 and think about the expanse of space and things like that. It just kind of puts things into perspective. We're not as big as we think we are. That the world doesn't revolve around us and the world doesn't stop uh, moving and it doesn't shut down simply because we have a crisis going on that we are part of God's great plan. Right? And that we are just a portion of his glory and his glorious plan. And the best way to live life is to understand that. You are God and I am not, but I am, I am invited into your presence and I am invited into your family and into your kingdom to be used by you and to know you, Lord God. And I think that's what Paul is overwhelmed with here. He says, God, you are, you are teaching me. You are molding me. And Paul, a highly educated man like we talked about last week. You know, Ivy League, Rhodes Scholar, Magna, Summa, Cum Laude, all the Cum Laude's you can find from one of the best schools, learning under the best people, one of the wisest guys that you could think of, trained in theology, trained in philosophy, just knew everything as a Roman and as a Jewish citizen. And he said, I don't begin to scratch the surface of the wisdom of God. Because, there is a bottomless depth in his doctrine of grace. There is an endlessness of his love and mercy towards his people. And there's this impenetrable nature about God and his commitment to his promises that when God makes a promise, he keeps his word, church. Never forget that. That When God makes a promise, he keeps his word. And he just gets overwhelmed by this. And Paul speaks with this like breathless amazement almost. This astounded nature in adoration of God. This is something that Oswald Chambers, who was the the writer of one of the, the, the greatest devotionals, classic devotionals that many people probably still use today, my utmost for his highest. But Oswald Chambers took notice of Paul's change of tone here in this passage. And he compared the casual approach of modern day faith and worship with the attitude of Paul in our text. And he says this, here's what Oswald Chambers says. He says, we are too free from wonder nowadays, We are too easy with the word of God and we do not use it with the breathless amazement that Paul does. And that struck me really hard because, you know, as a a pastor, I'd live in this book. I should probably spend a whole lot more time in it than I actually do. But I live in this book and I look at this book and I'm trying to always garner some information out of this book. But sometimes I cease to look at this book with the wonder and the amazement of just being a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes we look at this book for different reasons other than just to be drawn closer to God, don't we? We'll look at this book to find something to counsel someone with the promise. Or we'll look at this book to try to take somebody down in their sin or to call somebody to repentance. Or we'll sometimes even use this book to try to put people in their place, won't we? See, this book can be used for edifying purposes or it can be used for destructive purposes too. But one of the greatest things that we can do is to never be become used to or apathetic to what this word says. I think by and large today where John the Baptist said, Jesus, you must increase, but I must decrease. In the church of Jesus Christ, I think what we do oftentimes is say, the word must decrease while everything else must increase so that we become more faithful or more palatable to the world around us. Folks, we'll never have anything to offer the world that is greater than the Christ that is formed in this word. Ever, So we need to have a breathless amazement of the word of God. Because the gospel points to such an awesome and wondrous God. And it is only when we see our shortcomings in sin that we see his holiness as God. So we looked at a couple of things last Sunday. We got two more to look at today. And I just wanted to give you those first two things. If you're a note taker and you want to have everything together. The first two things that we looked at last Sunday was number one. Paul points out that God is, absolute, God is good in absolutely everything that he does. Really that God is absolutely good in absolutely everything that he does. Sometimes we may struggle with that, might we? Where we wonder sometimes, God, what are you doing? Paul was actually asking that in chapters 9 through 11. God, I can't can't really trace what you're doing here, but what I have to do is I have to come to trust your goodness in all of it right? That yes, there is a time right now where a hardness has fallen upon the nation of Israel, and a hardness falls upon those who reject Christ, but God does not give up. As long as there's breath in the body, there is hope for the soul, and there is goodness in what he is doing as well. How he even uses our rebellion and our sin and the consequences of our sin to invite us back to grace in him. I don't know about you, but I, and I talked about this last Sunday. I like to do I told you so's a whole lot of times, right? I love, I, I try to not say it, but I find myself saying it before I even realize that I'm doing. It. And here's why, because I'm right all the time. There's so many opportunities for I told you so that I can't, I, I just, but I have to learn. I don't have to swing at every pitch, you know what I mean? But, but God is absolutely good in everything that he does, but, he, but instead of taking this big cosmic, I told you so, when we sin and say, you know what? I gave you the way you should walk and you chose not to. I'm done with you. He leaves the door open. And he says, I call you to grace. See, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. And then we saw last Sunday before we closed out is that God is beyond us in absolutely every single way. This is one of the struggles that every generation of Christianity has had. Will we submit and humble ourselves before a God who is holier than us, who is more righteous than us, who is wiser than us, and who is more powerful than us? Will we surrender to him and will we give him lordship and control over our lives? Look at what the text says again. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. When you see that word depth, It makes me think ocean, right? It makes me think of the depth of things. Did you realize that we know more about things that are millions of light years away from us in space than we know about the bottom of the ocean floor on our own planet? The depths, when he talks about the depths of like, you know, we think about the depths and there there are animals that have yet to be discovered in the depths of the ocean. And this is what it calls us to understand that there are places that I can't go When it comes to my human ability. It's not because we lack the desire to know what's down there. It's because we lack the ability and the technology. Because of the intense water pressure. And all of the things that can be very dangerous sometimes for us to explore. And when it comes to the knowledge of God. Paul says, oh the depths of the knowledge of God. Right? Right? There are some things that in our human mind, in our human ability, in our human reason that we can't handle knowing today. The Bible says that one day when we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, we'll know as God knows. We'll know as we were known. We'll know those things, but we'll be in a place and we'll be in a state where we can handle those things. But for now, we follow him by faith because we may not know, we may not possess the ability to know, but we know the one who does possess the ability possesses us. And we trust him. And we trust his view of things that are beyond us. God is beyond us. And that's a good thing. It can also be a frightening thing, can it? To know that God knows everything about us. He knows the number of hair on our head. He knows every tear that falls. He knows every thought that we think. He knows it all. And I don't know about you. But knowing that about myself... And knowing that God knows that about me makes me think, man, God, you are very merciful. You are very loving. Because in spite of all of the brokenness and in spite of all the sin, God loves us. God cares for us and he sent his son so that we could be redeemed of that sin. He says how deep... The riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then it says, How unsearchable are his judgments and how untraceable are his ways. That means that every judgment that God makes is right. Every judgment that God makes is right. In our court system, we have a system of appeals that we can go through as someone who's been convicted. We can have appeals because there's the possibility that justice may not have been served or a jury may have gotten it wrong or a judge might have decided wrong. But here's what Paul is saying about our God, the righteous judge. He says, there is no reason to ever appeal the judgment of God because God is always 100% accurate in every judgment that he makes. And that God who is absolutely righteous in all of his judgment says he is our father. That he cares for us. That he pulls us into his own. Into his side. So unsearchable judgments. And how he has untraceable ways. That sometimes the way God acts. You can't figure it out. You ever been there before? Where the way God does things. You wonder God why are you doing it this way? There are people today. That are spending Father's Day. Grieving the loss of a father. Or thinking about. I feel like I lost my father too soon. Or I had a relationship with my father that I would have liked to have been better and I prayed many times for God to make it better but yet it didn't seem to get better and we wonder, God, I can't trace your ways. I think about the the Parks family this week and what they've been going through and I remember this song that Belinda used to sing in church. It was a song that was basically a quote from D.L. Moody that said, when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart where Paul says that his ways are untraceable. Sometimes we cannot trace his ways. We may not understand what he's doing, but we can always trust his heart because we can trust the depth of his knowledge. We can understand the depth and the riches of his mercy, of his grace, and that his judgments are always right. See, Paul's overflowing with this spirit of worship. And like I said, Paul is a super smart guy. He's the guy that everybody goes to to find the answers. He's an expert pretty much in everything. And Paul says, when it comes to understanding and figuring out God, I am not an expert. None of us will ever be an expert. But man, we can have this relationship with God where we trust Him. Where we fall upon His goodness, His grace, His majesty, and His glory to worship Him. So that's what we looked at last Sunday. Sunday. This morning, I want to look at two more things. So that God is absolutely good in everything that he does, and God is above us in absolutely every way. Also, too, we see that this makes God necessary in absolutely every way. Since God is so good, and since God is so high above, that makes him necessary to us. I don't know about you, but if I'm building a team, I want the best members on the team, right? I want to have Oscar Sheepway on my team because he's the best, right? If God is so good, so absolutely good in everything that he does and in every judgment he makes, and if he is so high above us, doesn't it serve the purpose that we need him? If he is inviting us in and opening the door that we can draw near to him, why would we ever want to hold ourselves away? Why would we ever want to hold ourselves away? Look at verse number 35. It says, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Look at what verse number 34 says. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Verses 34 and 35 are actually quotes from the Old Testament. From three passages in Job and in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. In Job, if you remember the story of Job, Job goes through so many things where he's probably wondering, God, what are you doing? His wife even told him, This God that you worship is definitely not paying off for you anymore. Why don't you just curse him and go ahead and die? So what she was really saying is, if God is not going to give you what you think you want, he's not necessary in your life. Have we ever had that thought process before? If God is not giving me what I want or he's not making sense to me, then I don't think I need him. See, God is not just a utilitarian tool. We're treating God like a tool then because if God is not useful to me anymore, I'll just cast him aside. Well, that's not what God is. God is not a tool. God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? But Job says there's a, there's a, there's a scene in, in Job's life where he begins to question God and what he's doing more than like more more importantly, what he's not doing is according to Job. And God simply says, Where were you when I formed all of this? Where were you when I spoke it into existence out of nothing? Where were you? Where were you when I was laying the foundations of the world? When I was speaking everything into existence? When I told the tides to go out this far and to come in this far? When I hung the planets in place? When I put them on the axis that they need to be on? That if they just tilt just a tiny degree or two, everything on earth changes. Where were you? Kind of put Job in his place to remember, I don't get to advise God because his ways are so much higher than me. He knows me, but it also made Job realize that he is necessary in absolutely every way. See, Paul, in his amazement at God's knowledge and his sovereignty, he's overwhelmed by the depth of God's mercy here because he says, who's ever given anything to God that God feels he needs to repay a kindness or a debt to him? So what that means is, has God ever looked at us who he saved, and say, you know what? I'm so overwhelmed by their faith in me. I'm so overwhelmed by their goodness and what they brought to the table in this relationship with us that I just need to repay a debt to him. God will never look at us and be the debtor. We will always be the debtors to him. Jesus paid the debt of sin that we all owe and could not pay. God is always debt-free when it comes to us. And many times we look at God and what we're really saying is, God, I don't think that my life should be going like this because I've done everything you've told me to do in that book. And I think I should be getting better blessings than what I'm getting from you. But you see, the gospel of grace and mercy tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray, right? That we are all sinners, that we're all deserving of death. But God Mm -hmm. in his grace has given us Life. And God, in His mercy, blesses us according to His will. See, we don't get to tell God what He's supposed to do. Can we ask Him? Yes. Can we beg Him? Yes. Can we plead to heaven? Yes. But ultimately, God, in His perfect judgment and His untraceable ways, are going to grant what is necessary for us and for His glory. You see, who's ever given anything to God that God feels he needs to repay a kindness? This means that there's nothing we bring to the table in our relationship with the creator that causes God to stand back and go, wow, I got a superstar in the midst. This is why the Bible tells us that God is not a respecter of persons because we are all the same in his eyes. We are all sheep in need of a shepherd. See, God's love for us is never reactionary. The word tells us that we love him because he first loved us. That means I don't wake up one day and I just blow God away with my love because we love him because he first loved us. It also means that God doesn't need us. We need him. Did did, did you catch that? God doesn't need us. He chose us and we desperately need him. This absolutely good God, absolutely majestic God that is so high above us in absolutely every way is necessary for us, but we are not necessary for him. This is what makes the gift of salvation so beautiful. That when we sinned and we walked away, he could have said, I'm done. I'll start over. But he didn't. He sent his own son so that we could be redeemed because he chose us. He doesn't need us. He chose us. He doesn't need Israel, but we absolutely need him. And he absolutely knows that and is absolutely good in providing us a way to him. And that is what leads us to the closing point that we need to see today. That the only proper response to this absolutely good, absolutely unreachable, absolutely necessary God is to worship him. That's the only response that we can make to God. I mean, and this is what Paul is doing in this passage, right? In chapters 9 through 11, he's gone over all of these just mysterious and unsearchable things that are causing him to wrestle and causing theologians for centuries to wrestle over and not understand. They have to just throw their hands up and say, I just have to trust him, which I think, I think, I think might just be the point of all of it. Because he calls us to trust him. Because what good is a God that I can put in the box of my knowledge? Right? If I'm smarter than God, he's not God. But there's so many people today that live as though they are. And think that if I can't just figure out every single thing about God. And put it in this system that he makes complete sense in. Then I don't need to follow him. Folks, it's because we can't put God in a box. is why we need to surrender to him and why we follow him. Because we need him. See, the only proper response is to worship this great and majestic God. How do you respond to a God so absolutely good, so absolutely great, and so absolutely necessary? You worship him just like Paul in our text. Look at verse number 36 again. For from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is more than a tag on a section. This is a declaration of adoration and also of purpose. That nothing exists without God calling it into existence. Nothing. And nothing comes to him without him giving the path and the ability to come to him. And nothing exists Forever, unless God allows them. We need Him desperately. And then it says, To Him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. See, this is a declaration. Of purpose here. Paul is responding to a glimpse of what was promised in chapter 9. If you turn back to chapter 9, and we were several weeks ago, we were in chapter 9 trying to figure out, oh my goodness, like, probably the hardest passage of scripture I've ever preached out of. And here's what it says in verse number 23. And if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared for glory. See that? Paul is asking this question. What if he did all of this? What if he did every single thing that he's doing? What if he did all of this for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory on his objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for his glory? What that means is, what if everything that he's doing, the good, the bad, the miracles, the moments when we think God is absent, what if all of it is being done for the purpose of us seeing just how majestic he is and seeing that he's the one that we need? What if that's what he's been doing? See, Paul steps back for a moment and reviews the hand of God through the gospel and he reviews the hand of God through salvation and through the metaphor of the olive trees and the grafted branches and the the idea of Pharaoh and how his heart got hardened and how God used that to show his power and through Elijah and how he told Elijah that, that, that there were people that were not gonna bow to Baal when he thought God had given up on everything. What if all of that has happened? And what if the things that you're going through in your life, the questions, the moments when you struggle with faith, what if all of that is taking place? And what if all of this wrestling has been done trying to figure out all of this to one purpose? That God is God and I'm not. And it calls us to worship him. What if all of this wrestling that I have done trying to figure it all out was on purpose? What if my questions were all for the purpose of standing amazed at the glory of how God works? You see, Paul was wrestling through chapters 9 through 11. And there are times when we wrestle with God. But what if that wrestling is for the purpose of bringing us to a place where we finally tap out and say, God, I give you myself because you are greater. And I submit to you. What if all the pain that you experience, the tragedy that you endure, the sin that you bemoan, and the questions that you have are all being used to bring you to the point where you can better see and better be amazed at God's glory? What if the darkest moment of your life was brought to you so that you could see his light piercing through the darkness and strengthen your faith? Is it worth it if that's what it took? That's the question we have to answer. Is it worth it to sit in the darkness, if that's what it took for the light to pierce through and for us to see the glory of God. Look what Pastor Paul David Tripp says. He says, See, human beings, as human beings, we're glory junkies, we're constantly looking for something to adore. We're constantly looking for something that, that gleams. That's why we call celebrities stars or athletes stars. We're constantly looking for something that's better that we can adore and celebrate, such as an athlete's skill or a model's beauty or an artist's work or someone's intelligence and strength. We all want something to adore and to admire, don't we? This is why we have so many celebrities today. We all want something. We're created, we're created by God to worship. We're gonna worship something or someone because that's what we've been created by God to do. God created us to worship him. But in the fall, we thought there's all kinds of other things that we can worship. This is really what was behind Adam and Eve's sin because the serpent said to Eve in the garden, said, look, if you eat that fruit, you're not gonna die. You're just gonna be like God. And it wasn't enough for Adam and Eve to worship God and serve him. They wanted to be just like it. Which is, by the way, the way Lucifer fell from heaven and became Satan to begin with. Because it wasn't enough for him to be the chief worshiper of heaven. It was, I have to be the chief object of worship of heaven. This is what we struggle with, right? We take our eyes off of God and the glory of him and we settle for lesser glory. And don't get me wrong, man. God has given people some great athletic skills. There is beauty in this world. There is high intelligence in this world. Paul was a great example of that. But nothing's ever going to outshine our Savior. Nothing's ever going to outshine God and his goodness and his grace. And there's never going to be anything as good as the good news of the gospel. Ever. Because the truth is, that those athletes that we admire, they age and they lose skill. Or another player comes along and then you spend all, time, all the time arguing, is LeBron better than Michael Jordan? Which, by the way, that shouldn't even be a question. Jordan's always going to be better. But there's some of you in here who might say, you know, man, Dr. J was the best. Or there's going to be an athlete that comes along one day that's going to blow out all of those other people. But here's the thing. None of those people will stay at the top of their game forever because they're human. A model's or an actress's beauty is going to fade over time no matter how many skincare products and no matter how many treatments they may go through, beauty is going to fade. Age is going to catch up. A person's riches are never going to be enough. A person's intellect is always going to diminish over time. Because everything on earth other than God is corruptible. We're all winding down. Only God is fathomless. Only God is infinite in his nature. I was at a a, a meeting this week with some pastors. And we were discussing the difference between commitment and surrender. And and this, this was... I mean, this was kind of like one of those moments where you feel like God just like reached up. You ever feel like that where you're reading the Bible and you feel like a hand of the Holy Spirit just reaches up and just slaps you across the face and you're like, why didn't I see that before, right? But we were talking about the difference between commitment and surrender. And and see, many people today are questioning whether they should commit to Christianity or commit to church or even to Jesus. But here's the thing. God, Jesus never called us to commitment. Never once will you find Jesus say, I call you to commitment. He says, I call you to repentance, which is a complete turn from where we were. And then he says, I call you to surrender. There's a difference between commitment and surrender. We need to understand the difference. And here's the difference. We commit to what we think is worthy of us. What's worthy of my time. What's worthy of my investment. We commit to what we think is worthy. But we surrender to what is beyond us. We commit to what we think is worthy, but we surrender to what is beyond us. See, I don't commit to Jesus because he's worthy whether I think he's worthy or not. I surrender to him because he is beyond me. He's beyond me. So I can let go of my commitments when they're no longer worthy of my time or my respect. So I can say, I don't need to attend church anymore. I can watch it. I can can listen to podcasts or I can do that. I don't need to do that anymore. That's not really worthy of my time. But when you're surrendered to a king of kings and the Lord of lords and he says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together surrender steps in and it trumps commitment. I can let go of my commitments when they're no longer worthy of my time or respect and so that means that when God doesn't make the things pan out the way that I'm praying they'll pan out he's no longer worthy of my time or my respect because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. But you see, when I'm surrendered to God, I throw all of my things to him and I say, Lord, this is what I want. But just like Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. There's a huge difference between surrender and a commitment. And as we grow in Christ, our surrender to him grows as well. So I can let go of my commitments, but when I surrender, it is open-ended. I will never outpace God when I surrender to him. Ever. So my question this morning as we move to closing out this morning as church, is our faith, can we say that our faith is one of commitment or is it one of surrender? See, Paul in our text here is brought to a place of total surrender before God. And Paul was one who was a hardhead. Why do you think God had to knock him? Why do you think Jesus had to knock him off of his horse or his camel on Damascus Road? Paul was a hardhead. And I'm so thankful that Jesus goes after hardheads. Aren't you? But the best place for us is to come to a place where we surrender to him. Throw away your commitments. God's not impressed with your commitment. What God is looking for is Surrender. Church, God's not impressed with how many things we commit to, how many things, how busy we may be. What he is is looking for is a church whose heart is surrendered to God. Surrendered to him. And what is a surrendered heart? It is one who knows that God is absolutely good in everything that he does, that he is way beyond us, and that he is absolutely necessary for everything. We need to stop settling. In our modern day faith, we need to stop settling for just having good services. And we need to start looking for services where we gather together and our hearts are surrendered to him. Because it is quite possible today to have gatherings, to have services where we walk away saying, man, it was good to be in the house of the Lord, but the presence of God wasn't anywhere around it. Surrendered hearts are hearts that are set to worship. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, in this section we've been looking at God's intent with Israel. We've been looking at the salvation of the Gentiles, but we've also seen the essence of a faith that saves. See, Israel Israel rejected to, pla- to place faith in Christ before, and they therefore missed salvation. So my question this morning or my challenge to you this morning is don't miss the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is as the Savior. Don't miss the opportunity. When you turn your back on Jesus, you turn your back on salvation, because Jesus is salvation. I, I pinned this down this week while studying this passage here, and it's something I'm going to make sure that I keep before me at all times. I'm working on making it something that I can frame, because I really feel like God was speaking through that. And it says this: "Is the essence of a faith that saves is one that trusts God even when we don't completely understand His ways. It's a faith that embraces His wisdom above my own." It's a faith that surrenders to his sovereignty over my own will and desires his power over my own strength. It's a faith that bows to his authority over my own autonomy and his majesty over my aggrandized sense of self-importance. And it's a faith which falls daily prostrate upon his grace and rests entirely in him, eyes locked on him forever grateful for the opportunity to bring him glory. This is what a saving faith looks like. It's one that is surrendered to him. A faith that enthrones Jesus and dethrones self. Does that typify the faith that we have today? Or is Jesus just a means to an end to get to heaven? Is Jesus just an accessory that we add to a life that we are already making really good for ourselves? Jesus is not an accessory, and Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end, and in the end, we find the beginning of everything. So if you need Jesus today, come to him. Father, I pray that you will speak in this time now. Help us to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you have said. And to respond, if you're working on our hearts for rededication of life, or if you're working on someone today for salvation, may you do a work in our hearts in Jesus' name. As we stand this morning, if you need to... Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylegs.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.